national project on race and capitalism. Welcome to season two of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, histories, and geographies, with your host, Michael Dawson. Federico Navarrete is a writer and historian who works at the Institute of Historical Research at the National Autonomous University in Mexico, the UNAM. Some of his most recent books include The Alphabet of Mexican Racism, Alfabeto del Racismo Mexicano, published last year by the Malpaso Press, and Racist Mexico, a Complaint, Mexico Racista Una Denuncia, published in 2016 by Grijalvo This year, he will publish a historical novel titled The Last Codex, El Codice Perdido. His other novels include Nawales vs. Vampires from the Ocean to the Mountain and Bones of the Lizard, Huesos de Lagrantija. Federico has written over 20 books and many more articles on the history of indigenous peoples in the Americas and the relationship between different indigenous groups that live in the continent. I'm very happy to welcome you to the New Dawn podcast. This is one of our episodes where we want to expand our understanding of the interaction between race and capitalism outside of the U.S. framework. We've done a couple of those in the past, but we're trying to aggressively do more. Given our audience, it might be useful to start with talking about the central racial myths and legacies in Mexico. Uh, with the dynamics that we associate with the concept of mestizo and mestizaje and introduce our audience to those concepts. Yes, of course. Well, I think that if we, if we are going to talk about race and, and capitalism in Mexico, we should understand that the dynamics are quite different from other countries, particularly from the U.S., because actually, I guess that we, we don't have that much research, that much historical research about the 19th century and the early 20th century, but we do have some general perspectives that allow us to, pre to present like a global picture. And of course, there must be important regional variations that should be taken into account. But I, we, could, I, we could say in general that in Mexico, the development of capitalism in the national state framework after the second half of the 19th century, because, because before that, Mexico had nearly no capitalist development because of civil wars and major political disruptions in the early years of the independent republic. But after the late 19th century, the development of capitalism was accompanied by a process of cultural convergence or of cultural homogenization that was defined racially as mestizaje, that is, as a process of racial admixture. And this was presented in a stark contrast mm -hmm. to the previous dynamic that had been defined by the colonial regime from the from the Spanish colonial regime from the 16th to the 18th to the early 19th century in which the society was very strictly divided into different castes or different racial groups of course they were not properly racial because there was no they were not defined in biological terms but rather in cultural and lineage terms which were basically Spaniards on the top and Indians, that is Native Americans in the middle somehow, and Africans and African slaves in the bottom rungs. 
there was also a fairly, not majoritarian, but a, a large minority of mixed caste people, people who, who were descendants of one of these two, of two, or, two or more of these different groups. And these people were defined as mestizo, which was basically the son or daughter of an Indian woman and a Spanish man, generally, and also mulatto, which were mixtures with, with people of African descent. And these castes, these, these middle castes, occupied a marginal position within the system. But the system, the colonial system, was basically the classification of Spanish, Indian, and Black, with the mixed groups somewhere in the middle. After the independence of the country, these distinctions were legally abolished, and a notion of universal citizenship was slowly adopted by the different social groups, and particularly, and that is very important, by the lower case groups by the Indians and the Africans, they adopted universalism as a way to escape their, their marginal situation in the colonial, uh, under the colonial regime. So when capitalist development started in the, 19th, in the late 19th century, it basically produced a generalized modernization of Mexican society, which implied urban urbanization, migration to work centers in the mines, in the mining regions, in the agricultural export, agricultural export regions. And for many, for the majority of the population, which was of Indian descent and which still spoke an indigenous language up until that period, this modernization meant that they adopted Spanish as their preferred language, or their obligatory language, actually. It was not, a, it was not necessarily voluntary. They had to speak Spanish and they stop defining themselves in terms of identification with their traditional local communities and started defining themselves in terms of the new liberal identity of uh, Mexican citizenship. And this was a process of actually of social and cultural transformation and clearly associated with capitalist development, with the creation of a rural and an urban proletariat, but it was defined in racialized terms. Uh, at the same time that this process of, racial, of social convergence and cultural convergence was taking place and Spanish was becoming the dominant language in the country and people were adopting this liberal notion of citizenship, the white elites of the, associated with the government constructed this mythical idea of mestizaje, which was the idea that the population was changing because of racial mixture because basically Spanish or European males were marrying indigenous or black women. Blacks were mostly taken out of the equation, mostly indigenous actually, and that the resulting racial atmosphere was producing a massive cultural transformation of the nation. So the whole idea of racial admixture was, was linked with capitalist development, with modernization, was linked with nation building in order to build a successful nation with this racial mixture was necessary and it was also associated with all the ideas of education progress and also with westernization. Cultural westernization, the adoption of Spanish and of liberal values was seen as a process of racial transformation, not as a process of cultural or social, of, of, of adopting new cultural and social definitions of identity. So from the late 19th century to the late 20th century, for about 100 years, this process and this conception of the process was the dominant force shaping Mexican society. After the Mexican Revolution of the early 20th century, after 19, 
17 and onwards, the new government, the new revolutionary regime adopted an, a different mode of modernization, which emphasized more, which was less liberal and less open to foreign investment as the previous one had been, and which emphasized more a nationalist agenda in economic development, industrialization through e export substitution, mm -hmm. so basically closed borders and no much free trade, construction of a, of a national proletariat that was supposed to be incorporated into the revolutionary regime through corporate structures. Mm -hmm. So the trade unions were controlled by the government and the peasant organizations were also controlled by the government. And they, but they kept this mestizaje ideology as the dominant ideology for justifying the whole process. And they, they just said that this new version of mestizaje was, was tied with social justice and would lead to a more equal society than the previous orthodox liberal version of mestizaje. But it was basically the same racialist ideology that basically associated modernization and capitalist development with racial change, racial admixture, with the racial homogenization of the nation. The objective was to have a nation that in the medium term, in the two or three generations' time, would be completely mestizo. There would be no indigenous population anymore, not not no more recognizable indigenous population, but also no more whites. Whites, the European, the traditional European elites, were also supposed to be assimilated into this new mestizo majority. And this was associated with belonging, loyalty to the revolutionary regime after the, in the 20th century, with participation in this economic develop, nationalist economic development agenda, and with corporation into the corporate structures of the revolutionary state. How did ginger play a role in the national myth, like with Mao Zedong, etc., on the sort of coming together of different people? Actually, the, the whole Mesaje ideology is highly gendered, and it's, it's predicated on the idea that the, the only legitimate admixture involves a European, a dominant European male and a subservient indigenous woman. So patriarchy is very much a core aspect of ideology. Of course, and all the defenders of mestizaje from, from the 19th century Justo Sierra to 20th century Octavio Paz, the Nobel Prize winner, all, all share this highly patriarchal view of mestizaje. The indigenous woman is always, seen, is always seen as a passive element, as somebody who represents an indigenous heritage that must be dominated and must be, in a way, even obliterated in some cases by the stronger influence of the European male. So it's, it's always been about white male domination of indigenous, of feminized indigenous populations. And there are some, in, in some of the most extreme versions of this mestizaje, it also, such as in Octavio, in the division of Octavio Paz, mm -hmm. it has also to do with actual rape and sexual domination of the woman through violence. In the milder versions, the, the woman is supposed to choose European males because they are, she recognizes that they are superior to indigenous males. But of course, any kind of masculinity of the indigenous population is obliterated in the, in the process. So since the, with the, you said you know, this process lasted, this ideology dominated for over a century and dominated both state and society in, in subservience or in service of the you know, capitalist economy to some degree. What's the, what has happened over the last 20 to 30 years? Uh, how has neoliberalism, and how, what do you mean by that, and 
played a role in these various types of intersections and the remaking of, of Mexican society, the Mexican state, politics, and economy? I think that this particular combination of a process of, of highly successful capitalist modernization of the nation in, from the 1870s to the 1970s, of growth of the state control of the economy and of growth of state control of society, of corporatization of society, and of the construction of new social actors, such as the working classes and the peasant masses that were defined as explicitly as mestizos, basically came to an end in the 1970s because of several factors. One of them was deep economic crisis of the import substitution model, which was not exclusive to Mexico, but happened in other Latin American countries more or less at the same time. Another factor was the, the, the increasing mobilization of the indigenous and, to a lesser extent, the Afro-Mexican groups that were not incorporated into mestizaje and that were marginalized by this mestizaje ideology and which increasingly demanded political participation, cultural recognition, and the adoption, uh, and well, the end of assimilationist policies towards them. And the third factor, I guess, was the, the introduction of neoliberalism, which in the case of Mexico was defined as a radical rupture with this previous model. It was associated, this nationalist economic development model was defined as a total failure because of the crisis of the 70s and 80s, and neoliberalism was supposed to be able to solve the crisis of this, of this model. And, of course, it was associated with free, with free trade and open borders, and later with NAFTA and uh, the Free Trade Agreement of North America. And it was also associated with, with incorporation of Mexican chains of production into globalized chains of production. And uh, since the 1980s, it was clearly associated with a deliberate impover impoverishment of the working population. I remember that in the 1980s, the, the Mexican government used to advertise that they had been able to reduce the, the share of wages in the gross national product from about 42% to 32% in the course of eight years, which basically means that they impoverished the working population radically. They took about a quarter of their wealth in just over five years. And Mexico presented itself as a seller, a provider of cheap workforce, cheap non-educated workforce, which was, in a guess, in many, not explicitly, but implicit, implicitly racialized. It was supposed to be like this, this whole idea of the Mexican worker as a brown-skinned, not very cultivated or not very educated, but very pliant and very hardworking agricultural or industrial proletariat. And it was also the end, uh, at the same time that the state changed its economic ideology and neoliberalism became a dominant ideology, which it has been, it has been since the 1980s here in Mexico, no major political player except the, the left questions the, the validity of neoliberalism in Mexico. At the same time that it, that it adopted this new ideology, it abandoned any talk about the constitution of a mestizo nation. So the new neoliberal state did not have any stake in the, in the modification of the population. It abandoned any talk about that sort of thing and adopted a kind of lightweight multiculturalism, which implied like paying lip service to cultural recognition and minority rights, but actually meant abandoning any kind of social policy of integration or of any of, of 
or recognition of any kind. So neoliberalism was accompanied by this hollow multiculturalism. Also, what was produced in the Mexican scene was a void in the public representations of the mestizo population. For, for the previous regime, for the previous nationalist regime, the mestizo was a working class peasant or worker or urban worker who was supposed to be the main protagonist of the national history. And as such, as such it was glorified by the muralists, by Diego Rivera, and it was, it was a major actor in Mexican history. After the introduction of neoliberalism, th this actor disappears, and there are no positive public representations of the ethnic identity of the mestizo majority of the population. What has come in the past few years has been, th this void has been filled or by the, the entrance of the, of the advertisement industry and the, pop and the consumer culture representations of whiteness as a form of universal privilege. So, in a way, while Mestizaje emphasized social and racial homogenization of the nation and associated with nationalist capitalist development, this form of globalized neoliberalism that exists now in Mexico emphasizes the, the abyss between a white elite that has access to all the international consumer goods and a brown-skinned population that is basically low-skilled, low-paid, and has no chance of ever becoming like the white elite. So I guess in many ways we can say that racism has become much more public and rampant in Mexico in the past 30 years and it, as it was in the previous 100 years. One thing I've heard with respect to, Me to Mexico but also with respect to Latin America more generally is that American scholars and activists overemphasize the role of race in, in analyzing um, domination and oppression and exploitation and expropriation and that it's much more about class. Well, how did that relationship play out, either in politics or you know, in terms of structural disadvantage today? I think that's, that's, a very, that's a very complex issue to understand in Mexico. But for, for starters, I would, I would agree that American definitions of race cannot be applied just like that without, without previous reflection to Latin American social configurations. In America, race is much more delimited and it has always been a part of personal identity, of official identification of group population groups, of, of urban geographies, and it has had so many social and legal and political dimensions that don't exist in the same way in Latin American countries, and in Mexico in particular also not. So if we take American notions of race and try to apply them to Mexico, they won't work. Mm -hmm. And of course, many, many scholars have seen this and have said that there's no definition of race in Mexico. But actually, I would say that th that's also not true. That in it, I think that the Mexican social system has its own definitions of race and is in many ways as deeply racialized as the American system, but according to different definitions of race. I think one of the things that we should take into account is that in Mexico, most people don't have a clear idea or a clear history of the racial origins. The Mexican state has not classified the Mexican population racially since the early 19th century. So there are no possible racial gene genealogies in Mexico, and it's impossible for anybody to really say what percentage of such and such blood they have. Mm -hmm. Of course, elite families do have 
reckonings of their own racial origins, which usually point to foreign origins of some kind, or to Creole or Spanish origins of some kind. But most of the population doesn't have that kind of, of definitions of identity. So what, and that's a phenomenon I, I have defined as racial indeterminacy. We basically, people in Mexico don't know which race they belong to, in a way. Suppose, of course, taking into account that races don't really exist and are called historical constructions, they haven't been constructed. They haven't been constructed in Mexico in the way they have been constructed in yes, the U.S. In fact, Mexicans have caused U.S. census makers all sorts of problems trying to figure out how to count. And, of course, the whole idea of mestizaje plays very well with this sexual, with racial indeterminacy. Of course, it's not sexual indeterminacy because it's very gendered, but with this racial indeterminacy, because when people don't know what are their precise racial origins, all always, you know, supposedly, they, they can basically say we are mestizos and that works for everybody. And we don't have racism here. So, and, and there's also this argument that in Mexico there can be no racism because we're all mestizos. But actually, mestizo is a racial and racist category. So, th that, that statement is actually contradictory. So when people say in Mexico it's all class and no race, they don't take account that in Mexico class relationships are also racialized, not according to an American definition of distinct racial groups, but according to gradations of skin color. And also, and also I think, and I think that's more important than skin color, is to cultural elements. The elites are more westernized. They have a much more cosmopolitan, modern culture than the popular groups in Mexico, whose, whose culture is closer to indigenous, Afro-Mexican, Afro or peasant cultures of, of, of the country, of the different regions of the country. And that is, uh, and that is also linked with skin color, although not in an in a univocal or direct way always. There, there's a, there's a, it's a correlation. And that is also linked to class position. So what we have in Mexico is a system where class differences are codified and read through somatic differences, skin color, and, and are also associated with cultural differences. The ways, varieties of Spanish spoken by uh, levels of education, kinds of habits and culture in general. So what we have is a spectrum in which the richer groups, the privileged groups are whiter, have a more westernized culture, and the, the poorer groups are darker, have darker skins generally, and have a much a less westernized culture, a different different cultures, different popular cultures, or peasant cultures or indigenous cultures. That of course is not there are no clear boundaries within that system. So that of course you can have people who with dark skins who belong to the elites and there are no formal barriers of entry for them in the elite groups. Although of course one strategy for social climbing in Mexico has always been to whiten yourself through cosmetics. I mean, people, mostly women, dye their hair and try to appear whiter than they supposedly are. And also, uh, families that are on the rise tend to marry whiter spouses than uh, so that to, in, to increase their, their social status. So there's this long-standing association of social status with whiteness. And the opposite, of course. And, of course, there are also many poor white people. But, but still, in, in, this, in this spectrum, poor white people are always seen as an exception. 
there's always there's this term Guero de Rancho, which is supposed to be like blonde from the countryside, which is kind of a contradiction because Gueros, blondes, are usually in part of the urban elites, not from they don't come from the countryside. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's there's all, all these very cruel jokes about people with dark skin color who try to occupy positions of higher status and who don't really deserve them, who look, who try to look the part but don't really cut it out, and that, that sort of thing that, that actually implies the implicit contradiction that you cannot have a dark skin and be in a position of social privilege. That unfortunately sounds too much like the U.S., <laughs> including within black communities where darker skinned urban migrants were called country, and that was not a, mm -hmm. that was a pejorative term. Mm -hmm. What, I want to go back in, in a second to thinking about uh, the, the, what some of the revolts in the countryside over the last 20 or 30 years mean, both for systems of racial and economic domination and Mexican politics more generally. But before we do that, I want to go back to the question of skin color regimes. You suggest they tell us something, but maybe on a surface level, about how societies are organized in Latin America. But as you know, there's been quite a bit of re recent research that have really emphasized skin color as a way and correlations between skin color and various social, various social and economic outcomes as a way to think about race in Latin America. What do we miss? What do we learn? What are better ways? What are worse ways to study race in Latin America? I think that these, these studies are new. A term that has become has been in fashion in the last 10 or 15 years in Latin America has been the concept of pigmentocracy, which is supposed to emphasize that the social stratification in Latin America is not so much about race as in continental origin, but more uh, has to do more with skin color and with, with appearance rather than origins. And I think that there's been a whole debate about that in Brazil and in Colombia and also in Mexico. And there have been important statistical studies, surveys, that have found a strong correlation between skin color and social position in Mexico, as in Brazil and Colombia and in most Latin American countries. I think that these studies are they're really useful, but in a way, they come as the confirmation of something that we already knew, which is that in Latin America, skin color is associated with privilege, whiteness is associated with privilege, and the opposite. And black or brown skin is associated with social marginality in general. But they don't, I think, they don't provide some of the key answers we need, and they can even be dangerous in, in some ways. I think that they don't provide the key answers. They, they establish a correlation. You have people who, who look whiter, who have better positions, and people who look more Indian or browner or, or blacker and have a lower position. But you don't, these studies don't tell us much about the specific mechanisms that have constructed this correlation, this stratification by skin color over time. And I think that we, don't, we still don't have the sociological studies to really understand these mechanisms of reproduction of this order, of this skin color stratification, in, in order to assert that skin color is the determinant factor. Of course, it must play an important role but I'm not, I don't have the evidence and I haven't seen the evidence that it, that it is the key role. So to speak about pigmentocracy, in my opinion, is to go a little bit too far. Because it, it, it implies the idea that skin color is the determining factor and we are not really sure of that. Actually, the latest survey by the Mexican government that established this link 
this correlation between skin color and social status actually established a much stronger correlation between place of residence and social status. So that means place of residence means the kind of social, the quality of the social services, educational services and health services you receive means the kind of democracy you get, because democracy is highly unequal in Mexico, means the kind of government protection you can expect or not, means the kind the exposure to criminality and violence and death, which is a really serious problem in Mexico in the past 10 years. So I would argue that those problems are, are much more determinant than skin color. However, historically, the populations that live in the most marginalized places are also darker. So it's, it's, I think it's a problem of inheritance and a problem of the reproduction of these inequalities in the present, but the actual mechanisms cannot be explained by broad statistical surveys. I think we need much more like really qualitative sociology and anthropology to understand how these differences are reproduced in in, in the real in the real social life of Mexican communities all over the country, and that's something sadly we that hasn't sadly that hasn't been done yet. There are some new studies, but we still need a, a lot to do. So that that would be one of my reservations. And I also think that when we read skin color, and that's something I know from personal experience and from social observation, both in Mexico and in Brazil and in many Latin American countries I've visited regularly. Skin color is never read as a singular or as the only quality of to determine a person's social status. When, of course, it's, it's a very important index of social status, but it's always accompanied by many other factors, such as way of dressing, ways of speaking, general behavior, even corporal attitudes. So actually, when we say somebody is white, Sometimes it doesn't mean actually that his or her skin is really whiter than somebody else's, but that he, he's dressed in a much more modern way, that he has, uh, or he or she has obviously a better education than somebody else, and all that kind of thing. So actually, there's, there's no way to isolate skin. In, in social practice, skin color cannot be successfully isolated from these other factors. But the problem with the service is that they tend to isolate skin color and to, to make it uh, perhaps a more significant factor than it actually is in social practice. And I think that's a very subtle distinction that we should always keep in mind. And also, one of my criticisms, of particularly of the use of these color palettes to, to, to define skin color, is that if you ask people to self-define themselves, the definition will not be objective, but will be subjective. And I would bet that people with aspirations of rising socially will define themselves as whiter than they really are. And I hate to, to say that people have a real color because people don't have a real color, because color is something that, of course, depends on many things. It's not, it's not just a biological inheritance. It's, it's a social construct. So people would, would tend to, to say that they are whiter. Paradoxically, some of the whiter elites of Mexico would tend to say that they are darker than they really are. So actually, what we get is a misrepresentation of a social dynamics that is actually much more complicated than a simple gradation of skin color. So I think these, these studies are useful, but they should always be taken with a grain of salt, and they should be part of a broader reflection on the, inter on the relation between class, skin color, racialized cultural differences, and political dynamics in, in Mexico and in Latin, other Latin American countries. I would agree that we need more sociological studies, for example, to show how social networks play a role that, that most statistical studies can't even begin to touch. Mm -hmm. 
or anthropological studies that can get in and look at how the you know, dynamics within a community operate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would also add, I'm sure you will not agree, I mean disagree, you won't disagree, is that we also need more historical studies. How, how are these patterns and systems of transportation both evolve and get reproduced over time? And those, that is part of the area where, and I, somebody, many of the audience know, does a lot of work with statistical studies. History is, 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 is even worse than perception from the other me- mechanisms through which statistical analysis is relatively ill-equipped to capture. So we definitely need, I think, more types of methods and more disciplines to, to understand these dynamics. Yes, absolutely. I think that in Mexico, what, what, what actually my project is to make this historical critique of mestizaje. And as long as we keep believing that Mestizaje has been the dominant factor in social the social constitution of Mexico. We don't underst- We won't be able to understand the very complex interactions between class, et- skin color, race, and culture, which have actually played in Mexico in the present and have played in the past two hundred two hundred years. One of the things that we've covered when we've talked to people in the podcast from Central America, from from Asia, and from the from the U.S. for that matter is in the new economic global economic environment, scenes of dispossession, expropriation, abandonment, <coughs> and how different groups' economic roles have changed in the last 30 years. One of the questions I wonder about, and I don't know the answer to, I would love to hear the enlightenment on, is to how are some of the, in, in, the, in the U.S., some of the uprisings we hear in places like Chiapas and elsewhere, how does that play into the evolving story of various forms of economic change, racialization, and the like? Well, I think that the Zapatista uprising of the Ejército Zapatista de Liberación Nacional in 1994 was a really very important, marked, a very important milestone in the history of the relation between different population groups in Mexico and the racialized definitions of Mexican identity. What the, for starters, before the Zapatistas, the indigenous population of Mexico, which which is statistically defined as more or less 10% of the population, which is basically defined as the people who speak an indigenous language, which is not an, it's a polemical definition, but that's the standard statistical definition. This 10% of the population was generally regarded as a completely marginalized group that had no important role in the history of the nation, except as, as, now, as an outsider group to the history of the mestizo nation. Mm-hmm. I think that after the Zapatistas, the indigenous people have successfully claimed a role in the history of Mexico and in the present politics of contemporary Mexico. So that has been important. They have, they have managed to, in a way, to shift from invisibility to visibility. And they have been recognized both legally and in many sectors of society as a legitimate actor in the Mexican political and social scene. I think that this, the, the Zapatista uprisings and then the different social movements in, in many of the indigenous regions of the country have also led, the, to, have led to the development of, of an increasingly articulate indigenous movement that has been able to produce alternative visions of the national development and of the possibilities of being Mexican outside the dominant ideologies both of mestizaje and of white neoliberalism. I'm assuming that neoliberalism has been basically a whiteness ideology in, in contemporary Mexico. And I think that the indigenous populations have been able to create counter-narratives to these hegemonic discourses and have been able to present them publicly in, in several instances. 
However, I think that these success, these successes, by the this has been a gigantic success, a huge accomplishment of the indigenous movement in the past 25 years have been marginalized because of several factors. One of them has been the so-called multicultural regime that has, has been established in Mexico that has been able to always locate these indigenous voices, indigenous demands and indigenous alternatives as a minority problem, not as something that needs that concerns the majority of the population. That has been the logic of multiculturalism in, in, all, in all societies all over the world, and it has been also very successful in Mexico. So while the, actually the indigenous populations are trying, the, the indigenous groups are trying to present an alternative version of national development, they have always been characterized as presenting alternatives for the indigenous minority and not for the supposedly mestizo majority of the population. So multiculturalism has led to a has led to a has facilitated the recognition of some of the rights, but also has led to the marginalization of some of their demands, which is, as as, we, as you said, fairly typical of multicultural regimes all over the world. On the second hand, I think that the ma the majority of the population has has not abandoned its definition as mestizo, and because it defines itself as mestizo, being mestizo basically means not being Indian any longer. A mestizo is somebody who has stopped being Indian and has become something else. So in a way, it's a negation of indigeneity. And that leads to a, to a lack of sensitivity towards the, the demands and the, the proposals of the indigenous populations. I think this was fairly evident in the, in this very and in a very sad way in the failure of the indigenous candidate indi independent indigenous candidate to the presidency of Mexico in this year Maria de Jesus Patricio currently known as as, as Maichuy was nominated by the indigenous national congress as an independent candidate for the presidency and she was because of the electoral laws in Mexico in Mexico she had to gather 800,000 signatures by verified citizens, and she was not able to even come close to that goal. And I think that this failure re re reflected the impossibility or the very large difficulty that mestizo Mexicans have of recognizing the validity of indigenous voices as, a, as, as somebody in a, in a national dialogue. Because, because of the traditional exclusion of indigenous group and the traditional inferiorization of indigenous attitudes. I think that in many mainstream Mexican, in the, in the media and politicians and in many Mexican circles, people said that there was no point in an indigenous candidacy because they associate being indigenous to being backward, to being uneducated, to being primitive in a very simple and, uh, of course, inaccurate way. And so they, they never thought that an indigenous candidate could be a valid political alternative and could provide valuable political proposals for the rest of the population. I think that this, was, this prejudice against the indigenous population is still widely prevalent in the, the so-called mestizo population and that the indigenous population has not been able to break it. Of course, they, they can't. It's not their fault. They cannot because they're not the owners of the media, because they don't have the, capi the social capital and the economic capital to be able to, to really challenge hegemonic discourses. And also another factor in the failure of, the, of, the, of, this, of this candidate 
was the fact that the, the electoral institution uh, demanded a high-tech system for signature registration that did not take into account the lack of access to computers and smartphones by most of the indigenous population that would have been the natural supporters of, of Marichul. So there was this lack of recognition of the digital divide, which in Mexico is highly racialized, which is part of a, of a general of a general misunderstanding of the cultural and, and social differences in contemporary Mexico. So it sounds to me like one of the lessons from this current presidential campaign in Mexico is that it shows the combination of racial ideology on one hand, the inability on um, part of some a large proportion of mestizo self-identified population to consider indigenous candidacy valid on one hand, combined with sort of the corporate and media ability to shape the rules, both technologically and through shaping the way the candidates presented, it shows how these patterns get reproduced even in the neoliberal era, where race, of course, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I guess that, in a way, Mexico has been post-racial for a lot, uh, supposedly post-racial, for much longer than the U.S. Because oh, mestizaje is supposed right? to be post-racial. <laughs> yeah. But actually, so just like in the U.S., post-racialism has been actually a way to maintain and enforce racial differentiation beyond, below the radar in a way. And that is, I think that's fairly evident in Mexico in two, in two contemporary arenas. The most blatant display of racism in Mexico today can be seen in the media and in the advertising industry. When you look at Mexican television, most, if not all, of the models are white and really very white, like blonde and blue-eyed, and, and they, don't they clearly don't represent the majority of the Mexican population, which doesn't have that skin color. And also in advertisement, almost all of the models are also white and European-looking. And this, this is not even perceived as racism by the people who, who, di who direct the media and the advertisement executives, but they define this whiteness in terms of beauty and in terms of aspiration. They, they basically associate being white with being high status and desirable and pretty and rich and successful, and they assume that any representation of brown people would be completely incompatible with this ideal of, of, of whiteness. So that, that's one of the places where, where racism is reproduced in contemporary Mexico in a, in a brutal way. And one of the amazing things that is that there isn't even any public discussion about this racism. It's something we see every day. It's part of the urban landscape, of the media landscape of Mexican society. And there's no, not even a political or public discussion of, of, the, of the subject. Mm -hmm. in, in a way, if multiculturalism in countries such as the US and even in South Africa has meant the creation of market niches for minorities, and the, the creation of special advertising messages for different ethnic groups or different racialized groups using models that correspond to their physical types. In Mexico and in other Latin America, that, that has not happened. Multiculturalism and neoliberalism in Mexico have led to an increase in the, in the social hegemony of whiteness and even to a suppression of non-white groups from the media landscape in our countries. So in a way, I think that a comparative reflection of that should be really interesting to understand the dynamics of la in Latin America. And I think that the most that, that is a that is a very serious arena, of course. But I think that the most dramatic manifestation of racism in contemporary Mexico has to has has to do with the way 
some populations ha are being in made invisible and opened up for extreme violence and even extermination in many regions of Mexico. Mexico has seen, has witnessed the murder, the violent death, over a quarter million people in the past 10 years. And even though I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't claim that they have been killed because of their skin color, what is quite evident is that there has been a total social and legal and political indifference to their fate, to these murders, because of they were already made invisible in life because of their skin color. And that means that they are invisible in death also because of their skin color. So race is not the cause of the violence, but this racialization of the majority of Mexican population, this invisibilization of the majority of the Mexican population has created a climate of impunity that has been a very fertile growing ground for the violence. I think that the violence in Mexico, I think this new, I, I, I wouldn't claim that it's a ne ne necropolitical regime, has to do with, uh, with the appropriation of territories for mining and resource extraction. Because actually, uh, the, the use of violence is highly regionalized and it, ha and it follows very clear spatial logics that have to do with appropriation of resources. It's not random. And it doesn't to do. It doesn't have. It doesn't even have so much to do with drug trafficking, as it has to do with territorial control for many other purposes, for drug trafficking, for all, but also for resource appropriation, arms trafficking, also human trafficking in a very large scale, and that this necropolitical regime is highly racialized also, and that's that is the the really dark underside of Mexican racism in, in the past 20 years. Unfortunately, I think that's where we're going in. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. Please find us on racingcapitalism.com. That is racingcapitalism.com to access the show notes describing this and all the other episodes and stay up to date on the Racing Capitalism Project.